In working for both Bushes and for Clinton and Obama, I can say no previous administration has done what the Trump administration is doing at EPA now. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Breach, Frontline, Democracy Now!, Got Science, and The Young Turks. In your book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, you introduce us to a rogues gallery of climate science deniers. How many of them have popped up in the Trump administration? Oh, well, it's a veritable who's who in the world of climate change denial. Um, I sometimes describe it as a a, a climate change denial dream team is what uh, Trump has basically put together. And, of course, uh, Trump has relatively little to do with it. Uh, He's basically outsourced uh, his entire administration to polluting interests like the Koch brothers and ExxonMobil, and they've made sure to get uh, their folks into key positions like Scott Pruitt, who's the EPA administrator, uh, is formerly the uh, Attorney General of Oklahoma, and as Attorney General of Oklahoma, he ghost-wrote papers, government documents for fossil fuel interests, passing them off as official government documents. Uh, He's uh, on record denying the reality of climate change, has connections with the Koch brothers. Then you've got Ryan Zinke at the Department of Interior, who is uh, another climate change denier. You've got Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil, who is our Secretary of State, and of course, as uh, uh, CEO of ExxonMobil, he worked closely with Russia to try to get access to their untapped uh, oil reserves. And of course, the thing that got in the way of that was the sanctions, which the Trump administration has worked hard, as we know, and has uh, potentially conspired with uh, Russia to get rid of those sanctions so that they can tap that oil. Just today, there was an announcement that uh, the new head of the USDA is a climate change uh, denier, and the um, new Trump spokesman who's replacing uh, Sean Spicer, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, is also on record as a climate change denier. So again, wow. the, it, it's uh, and, and that isn't a coincidence. That isn't a coincidence because it really is the Koch brothers and polluting interests like ExxonMobil who are running the show. Trump himself is, is just a puppet. I was amazed that Sam Clovis at the USDA was appointed to be the chief official in charge of responding to climate change vis-a-vis our food supply. So like, no big deal. Right. Yeah. And he was the guy who also brought Carter. I love to talk to Russian spies page on onto the Trump team. And I have this feeling that it's kind of like a punishment almost (laughs) that he'd be the ambassador to France or something like that (laughs) for delivering his home state. But he's actually been sent out to the USDA to deny climate change. Right. It's like a Siberian outpost. Yeah. You know, that's right. And national security, uh, another example where climate change, just like food, climate change um, has a direct connection with national security. And here we've heard fallacies coming from the Trump administration, like, oh, well, you know, we have more important things to worry about than climate change, like ISIS. Well, in fact, if you understand the origins of ISIS, you realize that climate change probably played a key role in creating this unprecedented drought in Syria that drove rural farmers into the city, creating 
uh, increased competition and instability, which ultimately created conditions in which a terrorist organization like ISIS could arise and thrive. So, in fact, um, all of these other threats and challenges that we face in in many cases are actually uh, exacerbated by climate change. Trump tried to frame this as an assault on American jobs in almost conspiracy theory-like yeah. terms. What was his argument for why this would cost us jobs, and what do you think of that argument? Yeah, well, in Trump's case, it, 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 it's dangerous to attribute malice to what can be uh, better explained as ignorance. But those are advising him, and, and those uh, you know, who are really guiding the, the policies, uh, who are crafting the policies of the administration – which again are, are really associates of the Koch brothers, including interests, have used that cynical argument that it's supposedly about jobs when in fact it's plainly evident that the opposite is true. The rest of the world, China, India now, um, Europe, the European nations recognize that renewable energy is the great economic revolution of this century. And, and they're getting on board. And those countries that, uh, that are getting on board uh, in the renewable energy uh, revolution are going to be the countries who lead economically this century. And instead, the Trump administration, the fossil fuel you know, lobbyists who run the, the Trump administration have instead done everything they can to block progress on renewable energy, uh, to keep us locked into this fossil uh, energy source, fossil fuels, to the detriment of our economy, to the the detriment of the American people. So there's a good chance that if the Trump administration is making an argument for doing something, just the opposite is likely true. The president keeps fuming about how China is allowed to build all these coal plants and the United States is not because of the Paris Accord. What is he talking about? Yeah, so again, if Trump and the Trump administration is saying something, then there's a good chance the opposite <laughs> is true. Uh, in the case of China, that is five-year-old rhetoric, outdated rhetoric. It's erroneous. It's false. It's an untruth. The, China is actually decommissioning coal-fired power plants now, and they are actually well ahead of the commitment uh, that they made to the U.S. in the bilateral agreement between the Obama administration and China a couple years ago. So ironically, uh, China is doing much more than us. They are investing far more in renewable energy. In fact, they have flooded the global marketplace with uh, inexpensive solar panels. They brought down prices for solar panels around the world. So that's a ruse. It, it's it's untruthful, and it's a talking point that's repeated because simply, you know, an untruth that's repeated often enough, uh, often enough to often becomes accepted as the truth, and that's what's going on here. Uh, what what Trump is saying, and what others who point to you know China to, to claim that they're not holding up their end of the bargain. It's just not truthful. The opposite is actually true. We're the ones now who are not uh, holding up our end of the bargain. If Trump is really going to come back into the Paris Agreement, what would that look like? I mean, it seems unlikely that he would simply re-sign up without some kind of concessions on the other side. Yeah. Is there any feasible path back in that would be acceptable to yeah, the other signatories? I mean, yeah, it's a really good question. You know, in, in principle, actually, because it's a voluntary agreement, being back in the Paris Agreement simply amounts to saying, we're back in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's a good chance that we will meet our obligations under Paris, even in the absence of leadership uh, by the White House or by uh, congressional Republicans, because there's so much progress being made at the state level, at the municipal level, uh, states like California, 
you know, the entire West Coast, uh, the New England states are ramping up renewable energy, introducing incentives for, for clean energy, and in the case of the West Coast states, putting in a cap-and-trade system to limit carbon emissions. They are So there is enough progress taking place that we may well meet our <laughs> obligations under Paris, regardless of what Trump says. So, you know, to some extent, when he said he was backing out of Paris, that was a hollow statement because, in fact, he doesn't really have much control over that, especially since it's a voluntary agreement. It was simply a matter of symbolism, and it conveyed to many of us here in the U.S., and it conveyed to the rest of the world you know, the notion that the Trump administration was going to do everything they could to block progress and to double down on fossil fuels and to eradicate incentives for renewable energy. And they are doing those things. They are trying to put that in place, but they just don't have enough influence over our economy, the economic machinery of our economy uh, today to, to really make that much of a difference. So the flip side of that is it's very easy for him to say that we're back in Paris he just it's a matter of him simply stating so but you ask something else which is important he's also said he wants to renegotiate well that's ridiculous right this is a treaty that was signed by nearly 200 countries after years of negotiation the idea that he could just somehow renegotiate unilaterally this treaty with the remaining nearly 200 nations uh, around the world who signed on to it is is silly getting ready to take a major swipe at former President Barack Obama's legacy on climate change. The president's executive order today calls for reviewing the clean power plan. According to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, the president's order will replace the Obama plan with a pro-growth approach to regulation. Two months after he became president, Donald Trump arrived at the Environmental Protection Agency for a ceremony unlike anything the agency had ever seen. I want to acknowledge the truly amazing people behind me on this stage, our incredible coal miners. He was there to fulfill a campaign promise. We love our coal miners. To begin undoing one of President Obama's signature achievements in the fight against climate change, the Clean Power Plan. You know what was most awkward about watching the signing of that executive order? was the fact that they were doing it at EPA. Former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy. To me, it was not just a signal to his base, but a real shot across the bow to the agency itself. And, uh, and it, was, it was disturbing. The miners told me about the attacks on their jobs and their livelihoods. They told me about the efforts to shut down their mines, their communities, and their very way of life. I made them this promise. We will put our miners back to work. Mr. Trump, he acknowledged me in the audience. Murray Energy Corp CEO, Bob Murray. And if you look at the press releases on it, the back of my bald head is in, is in the pictures. New York Times reporter, Eric Lipton. The notion that Bob Murray of Murray Cole was at the EPA headquarters celebrating action by the EPA was like so completely 
fiction. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. I would say that people were were really devastated by that. Former EPA head of water, Betsy Sutherland. That it was considered to be uh, really an open slap in our face. What it conveyed is this is a hostile takeover. Former EPA head of civil enforcement, Eric Schaefer. You, the scientists and lawyers and engineers at the agency, are no longer valued. This is a political operation. It was a victory for Scott Pruitt, the president's new EPA administrator. For years, he'd been leading the fight against environmental regulations from Washington, like the Clean Power Plan. Ready? In working for both Bushes and for Clinton and Obama, I can say no previous administration has done what the Trump administration is doing at EPA now. There is a clear and present danger to public health and safety in this country that the repeals this administration is going to undertake are going to go forward. They're they're not going to slow down. Bob Murray. It was eight years of pure hell under the Democrat Party and Obama. But we won. It's a wonderful victory. As Trump and his team prepared for the transition, they reached out to Myra Nebo with a surprising offer. They said, well, Mr. Trump believes that the federal government cannot go on the way it is. And I said, well, I agree with that. And that it requires fundamental transformation. I said, well, I agree with that. And that he thinks that the EPA is one of the uh, obstacles to getting the economy going again in, in heartland America. And I said, well, I certainly agree with that. And Mr. Trump has even said that he wants to abolish the EPA. And I said, well, I agree with that. And he said, well, that's why we're asking you to run the Trump transition team for the EPA. Gina McCarthy. Well, it gave me a clear understanding of, of the direction that the administration was, was planning to head because Mr. Ebel is one of the big and most vocal climate deniers. Ebel began helping to create a plan for the Trump EPA. And it wasn't long before Scott Pruitt emerged as the pick to take it over. What was your reaction when the president announced Scott Pruitt? Total delight. Bob Murray. And did you have a hand in recommending Scott Pruitt to the president to be EPA administrator? No comment. No comment. Oklahoma's Attorney General Scott Pruitt named the nominee of President-elect Donald Trump to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. A leading critic of the EPA now in line to take its helm. A dozen of Bob Murray's coal miners showed up at the U.S. Senate in January for Scott Pruitt's confirmation hearing. How are you all doing? For Pruitt, it was a chance to explain why a critic of the EPA should run it. I, I believe there is a very important role the Environmental Protection Agency. In fact, its involvement in protecting our air quality and improving our nation's waters is extremely important. And the EPA has served a very valuable role historically. We must reject as a nation the false paradigm that if you're pro-energy, you're anti-environment, and if you're pro-environment, you're anti-energy. Pruitt also expressed his doubts about climate change. Let me say to you, science tells us that the climate is changing. And then human activity in some manner impacts that change. 
The ability to measure with precision the degree and extent of that impact and what to do about it are subject to continuing debate and dialogue, and well it should be. But Senate Democrats had strong doubts. The fear is that the nomination of Mr. Pruitt is a nomination designed to protect the fossil fuel industry and not the environment. We have a meeting agenda from the Republican Attorney General's Association uh, meeting at the Greenbrier. Sheldon Whitehouse, a former Attorney General from Rhode Island, pressed Pruitt on his ties to industry. Uh, mentions a, a private meeting with Murray Energy. What the American public deserves is the assurance that people who take government positions are making their decisions based on the merits, not based on prior relationships, present relationships, the expectation of future relationships. The priority was to get at the conflicts of interest. You helped raise money for the Republican Attorney General's Association while you were a member of its executive committee. They received $530,000 from Coke Industries, $350,000 from Murray Energy, and $125,000 from Devon Energy. Did you solicit in your role at the Republican Attorney General's Association any of that funding? I attended fundraising events as an attorney general along with other attorneys general with respect to the RAGA. And did you solicit? Did you ask them for money? That, or RAGA? As I, as I indicated, I attended fundraising events. Senator Whitehouse. In the ordinary course, his conflicts of interest would disqualify him from this position. And were it not for the power of the fossil fuel industry in Congress, then I don't think he would have had a shot one of President Trump's most controversial cabinet picks has made it through the Senate. Scott Pruitt was just sworn in moments ago. He will run the Environmental Protection Agency, much to the dismay of many environmentalists. A week after Pruitt was confirmed, the president gave his marching orders. Today, this executive order directs each agency to establish a regulatory reform task force. It was a mandate to all federal agencies to slash regulations. The New Yorker's Jane Mayer. What you see now with the Trump administration is the triumph of the anti-environmental movement. Should I give this pen to Andrew? Dow Chemicals. <laughs> they are now in control of the government and in control of the regulatory process in a kind of a brazen way we haven't seen before. There's a tendency to ignore what's going on in places like the EPA. And really radical things are happening there and, and people aren't paying attention. Well, let me tell you, there's been a change of direction, obviously, at the EPA, because the war on coal ended, the war on fossil fuels ended. To help him, Pruitt hired people with deep ties to industry. Eric Lipton, New York Times. It's startling to see the class of people that he surrounded himself with, the lawyers and lobbyists who were fighting alongside of him to challenge the Obama rules. They are now setting the policies that they were so involved with trying to kill. He is making the regulated the regulators. Pruitt also relied heavily on his fellow Oklahoman, the Senate's leading climate change denier, James Inhofe. We keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record. I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball. Several of Pruitt's senior advisors worked for Inhofe at one time. cold out, very unseasonal. It happens the person who is running the EPA right now is a good friend of mine. In fact, his chief of staff was my chief of staff. Uh, so the, the abuses that we were subjected to by the overregulation 
for uh, the eight years under Obama are things that we can now change. And we are in the process of doing that. People are not aware of it. Scott Pruitt promised an aggressive rollback of environmental regulations that have been put in place by former President Obama. The Environmental Protection Agency dropped a requirement that oil and gas interests report information on methane emissions. Scott Pruitt said withdrawing the rule will ease burdens on business. The new head of the Environmental Protection Agency reversed steps to ban a controversial widely used pesticide linked to potential health problems in children and farm workers. Soon. Scott Pruitt's EPA had moved to delay or roll back more than two dozen rules and regulations. Scott Pruitt, he is the star on the Trump team, getting more done. Bob Murray. Probably than any other appointee to date. I gave Mr. Trump what I called an action plan very early. It's about three and a half pages. And of what he needed to do in his administration. He's wiped out page one. We turn now to the latest move by the Trump administration to undo President Obama's environmental legacy. Trump has already withdrawn the United States from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, rescinded the Clean Power Plan, reversed a moratorium on leasing federal lands for coal mining, and proposed deep cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency. On Tuesday, the EPA announced new plans to roll back an Obama administration policy that environmentalists say will remove drinking water safeguards for one in three Americans and threaten thousands of streams that flow into large rivers and lakes, as well as wetland areas that filter pollutants and absorb floodwaters. The 2015 regulation, known as Waters of the United States, determined that more than half of the country's waterways are covered under, under the Clean Water Act. Now The Intercept has revealed the person that President Trump has tapped to head the EPA agency in charge of water safety is a former lobbyist with deep ties to a fossil fuel advocacy group that promotes the Dakota Access Pipeline and offshore drilling. Dennis Lee Forsgren will help oversee the EPA's Office of Water, which implements the landmark Clean Water and Safe Drinking Water Act that were passed in the early 70s. This includes studying the toxic effects of fracking on groundwater safety, the downstream consequences of industrial pollutants and the environmental impacts of oil spills. For more, we go to San Francisco. We're joined by Lee Fang, investigative journalist at The Intercept, covering the intersection of money and politics. His latest piece, EPA's new water safety official, is a lobbyists with deep ties to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Lee, welcome back to Democracy Now! Tell us what you found. Amy, Nermeen, thank you so much for having me. The latest political appointee uh, in the Trump administration, uh, as you mentioned, is Dennis Lee Forsgren. Um, this is an individual who's been appointed to head up uh, the department within the EPA that deals with safe drinking water and, you know, reviewing uh, research into uh, water safety. And this is a potentially problematic uh, political appointee because this person comes directly from a fossil fuel lobbying firm, HBW Resources, that is kind of uh, infamous for cloak and dagger 
uh, tactics. They were very prominent in the, in the uh, fight over the Keystone XL pipeline and more recently on the Dakota Access pipeline. So who are Li Fong? Just tell us a little bit more about HBW Resources and who their clients have been. Well, we've tracked um, HBW for a while now, and this is a lobbying firm that actually specializes in kind of deceptive tactics. And I'll just give you uh, three examples of that. They operate a kind of fake consumer group. This is the Consumer Energy Alliance, uh, purportedly, you know, an organization that represents mom and pop energy users. But in fact, uh, this is an organization fully controlled by these fossil fuel lobbyists, funded by large oil and gas companies, uh, oil refineries, that goes out and kind of um, misrep misrepresents itself to influence the public debate, you know, around these oil and gas issues. Um, and another example uh, is the fight over Arctic drilling. You know, when Shell Oil was pushing to drill in a very sensitive area of the environment near Alaska, um, there was a letter writing campaign to kind of convinced regulators to uh, give them approval. And uh, HBW and CEA uh, helped facilitate a lot of these letters. Uh, one of these letters uh, supposedly came from uh, an onion farmer group. But we looked at these letters and they were essentially copy and pasted from language provided by these lobbyists. So it didn't seem like a truly authentic letter. Um, they kind of specialized in this, these type of astroturf or fake grassroots strategies. And on the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, uh, these same lobbyists uh, were involved in, you know, uh, setting up events and, and going up uh, to Standing Rock and, and being quoted in the media. They attacked the protesters at Standing Rock, claiming that, you know, the pr protesters who went to demonstrate against the pipeline, they weren't in interested in protecting the environment, that the people involved in these protests we're simply going up there to slow down the American economy. And, you know, if you've talked to any of these protesters, that's clearly not true. But that's kind of part and parcel to the tactics used by this lobbying firm. Well, I want to read a statement by uh, Consumer Energy Alliance President David Holt in October 2016 during the protest by waterkeepers against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Holt stated, quote, the steps taken by these individuals to sabotage pipelines, in addition to the threats, intimidation and cyberbullying tactics they're using, clearly show that their agenda has nothing to do with protecting the environment and everything to do with shutting down the American economy and hurting everyday Americans, families, small business, and our economic way of life. Uh, so, uh, Li Fong, can you respond to that uh, and also explain who the funders are uh, for the CEA, the, the Consumer Energy Alliance? Right. Well, you know, the CEA group, um, you know, they, they pretend to be an independent organization, but, you know, we've gone through tax filings and found that, you know, large oil refineries, uh, companies like Coke Industries uh, that you uh, previously referenced on your show and, and Philip 66, these, these big kind of um, industrial polluters are providing a significant portion of, of the financing for CEA. And, you know, the quote that you just read is um, kind of a typical strategy that they, they place advertisements, they write letters to the ed editor, they, they hold rallies um, and, and kind of organize opposition to actual social movements and, and to grassroots groups. And the individual that, that provided that quote you just read, you know, he says that he's a, you know, a voice of the consumer, but actually he's just another person at the same lobbying firm 
um, where Dennis Lee Forsgren is from. So, you know, they control this uh, fake consumer group. They go out and they, they use these kind of aggressive tactics to diminish um, the work of social movements. You know, earlier this week, the EPA taking steps to rescind the waters of the United States rule. Explain what the uh, administration is trying to do and how it links into uh, the current uh, man that uh, the Trump has tapped, Forsgren. Well, the waters of the United States rule is a major um, achievement by the Obama administration. It, it extends Clean Water Act protections, um, or, you know, this, this law originally applied to only to large bodies of water like the Chesapeake Bay, but the regulation in 2015 extended these protections to wetlands and streams, um, bodies of water that feed into larger uh, bodies like the Chesapeake Bay. And this has been bitterly opposed by lobbyists. Um, you see big agribusiness and industrial polluters lobbying very aggressively against this rule. You know, back when there is the debt ceiling fight, um, the, the government shutdown fight. Lobbyists attempted to attach r r budget riders to repeal this rule, and they were unsuccessful. But now with the Trump administration, they have another opportunity to repeal this regulation. And that's exactly the process that began this week. Um, the Office of Water and the EPA will be uh, managing that process. And, you know, the EPA under the Trump administration is um, a perfect example of industry capture. Um, from the top of the administration down, uh, we've seen political appointees directly from industry. You know, the Legal Affairs Office is now staffed by Trump administration appointees from uh, the utility industry. We see a coal lobbyist as, as the number two appointee. Uh, just this week, we, we saw another um, uh, oil and gas lobbyist from the American Petroleum Institute appointed um, to another legal affairs office of the EPA. So as the EPA moves to repeal these um, environmental safeguards, you literally have oil and gas lobbyists who've spent the last you know, three to four years fighting this regulation, now in charge of uh, repealing it. As always, I want to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, or more specifically, listeners like Lydia M. and Michael R., both of whom signed up recently as Social Justice Warrior level members. Uh, you see, we have three levels of membership, starting with regular members who don't get any kind of fun name, but for those who go above and beyond, there's professional protester level members and the elite SJW members, and uh, with the way Patreon works, charging everyone all at once on the first of every month, at the beginning of each month, there's a, a new sort of a graduating slate of elite members who get bumped to the top of the gratitude queue. So thanks so much to Lydia and Michael for their support and going above and beyond, but also to all members and donors who help keep this show going. And a quick reminder that members get access to a special members podcast feed that you can subscribe to just like any other podcast using your favorite smartphone app, computer app, whatever you usually use to listen. The members podcast is actually a replacement for the regular show that you're already listening to because it includes ad-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content all in one place. Couldn't be easier. And that's the only way you're going to hear the bonus content that we do. Amanda and I uh, dive a little bit deeper on whatever issues are piquing our interest recently. Like our most recent one was to critically comment on a TED talk that a woman gave explaining how she came to the realization that men are actually humans 
and therefore had to stop calling herself a feminist, because it seems to her that those two things, being a feminist and recognizing the humanity of men, were somehow incompatible. So you can bet that we had some comments for the many, many layers of ignorance she was displaying in that talk. So members should be sure to check that out. But as I always say, and I really do mean this, whether you can only chip in a buck a month or 20, we really appreciate any support you can give. So please think about signing up. You can find us at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. So, Gretchen, six months in, what's the state of science in the Trump administration? What patterns are emerging? We're only six months in, and already we're seeing a pattern of attacks happen like we've never seen before. We're seeing across issue areas and across federal agencies, science is under attack or being sidelined or being compromised in other ways, and it's happening across the government. So, when it's working right... What role do scientists have in policy? What role should they have in the policy process? Science is a crucial input into decision-making in our government. Every time we eat food that is safe from contaminants and every time we use consumer products that are safe from other harms they might cause accidentally, this is because science went into that process. And scientists, experts both within the government and outside of it, weigh into those policy decisions to ensure that we all are safer and healthier and our environment is clean What are the pieces of that process? You have a bill like the Clean Air Act that says that the EPA needs to use science to inform decisions about pollutants. How do you get from there to a rule specifying ozone emissions? Yeah, the Clean Air Act is actually a really great example of a law that requires the use of science in decision-making. So the Clean Air Act uh, dictates in it that we need to set standards for air pollution that are protective of public health. And so that means that for pollutants that we know to cause harm, like ozone, we need to make sure we know what the science is. What exactly is ozone's effect on our health? What level is safe for people to breathe? And so what we do is we have committees comprised of scientific experts that make recommendations to the federal government for what level ozone pollution standards should be set at. Uh, So this process, by and large, works very well, even in the face of inappropriate interference or in the face of lots of pressure from various actors to set the standard a certain way. By and large, the EPA has been able to set standards that are protective of public health. But what we're seeing under this administration is that scientific process, like in setting ozone standards, has been tampered with, has been compromised. On ozone in particular, Administrator Pruitt at the EPA issued a stay on it. He tried to delay the ozone standard by one year. Uh, But actually, some good news is we just learned this week that was actually reversed. And so now implementation of the new standard will go into effect this year as the law had required. So how is the Trump administration getting it wrong? What are the pieces of the puzzle there that are under threat? 
Uh, actually, it's most of them, <laughs> Seth. Unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of the efforts that we've seen have taken place at all the various ways that science informs decisions across the government. So one of the more prominent ones that we've seen this administration really tackle is uh, taking away science advice. So scientific advisory committees are under attack under this administration. We've seen them uh, disband a forensic science panel that was supposed to be getting more science into the way that we use forensic evidence in court cases. And there was a board of scientific counselors, which is a committee that informs EPA's research. And they've been eviscerated in terms of the members on that committee. Uh, And we've seen the administrator of the EPA look to do the same for the other scientific advisory committees that inform the EPA. Uh, And so this seems to be a place that the administration is really focusing on in terms of their attacks on science is really taking away that external science advice that is so valuable to policy decisions. How is the Trump administration so far different from the ways that either the Bush administration or the Obama administration has misused science? What do you see as new in the Trump era? You know, Seth, scientific integrity issues have been happening in the government for many years. I've looked at these and and studied them for a long time, and and we've seen the politicization of science happen on a variety of issues uh, in the Obama administration, in the Bush administration, and prior. Uh, The thing that's different to me now is that a lot of the issues that we're seeing under the Trump administration are new kinds of attacks and that there's a lot more attacks on the process. not just tampering with evidence or changing science, which is a lot of the kind of thing we saw under the Bush administration, for example. But under the Trump administration, we're seeing them really try to dismantle the very process by which we can use science to inform decisions. So we talked about the taking away of science advice, and we're also seeing them chip away at the levers and and checks and balances that allow us to make sure that science informs how we make decisions. And we're seeing them try to take science out of the equation in several ways. Uh, One example of that was uh, the EPA administrator's decision recently not to ban the pesticide chlorpyrifos for several uses. This was a pesticide that the EPA's own scientists, as well as the broader scientific community, told the administrator of the dangers of it and and recommended that it be banned in certain contexts, and uh, yet the administration failed to do so. You mentioned the concept of scientific integrity, and that's something that we work on a lot at the Union of Concerned Scientists. What does scientific integrity mean, and why is it important? To me, scientific integrity is all about the process. It's making sure that the process we use to use science to inform policy stays free of inappropriate interference, that science is allowed to inform it appropriately, uh, that conflicts are disclosed, and that decisions are made based on that evidence, especially if that decision is required to be based on science. So there's many Mm -hmm. laws, like we discussed the Clean Air Act, uh, that have visions that mean we have to make decisions based on science. And to be clear, there's, of course, many reasons that decision makers will make decisions that have nothing to do with science. There's lots of inputs into decision making, and science is only one of them. But the science that informs decisions should be independent. And when that decision is required to be based on science, that's what should happen. And so those are the kinds of things that we're looking for in the Trump administration, whether or not they are making science-based decisions when they're supposed to, are there avenues for independent science to be informing uh, decisions? And so far, uh, the record doesn't look good. 
if you don't have science informing these decisions, then they become entirely political. They become entirely about who has the most sway with this administration. And, uh, you know, in this case, as, as we've seen from a number of news stories, who has the most sway with this administration is industry lobbyists and, you know, think tanks and front groups that represent the industries that are trying to remove rules. It's true. I, mean, I think we can think of it as if science isn't there, what is? It's mm-hmm. leaving a void that's going to be filled by special interests. And these are decisions that should be in the public interest. In right. fact, that's legally required in most cases. But if we don't have the infrastructure in place to ensure that that happens, uh, we're really in a dangerous place. And so you've mentioned EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt a couple of times. Who are the worst offenders here? Who are the appointees who particularly stand out? Administrator Pruitt is very much someone who doesn't appear to respect the science, and we've seen this on multiple decisions of his so far, but he's certainly not the only actor in this space. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently appointed a non-scientist to be their chief scientist, so that's another one that we're watching, and I think there's several in the White House that we're concerned with. The lack of experts at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy was disappointing to see the lack of a science advisor. Uh, We still see some agency heads that haven't been filled yet. The um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, for example, doesn't yet have a head. Uh, We're seeing really a lack of scientific expertise in this administration, and I'm really worried about what impacts that will have on the ability of these agencies to carry out their science-based missions. So the Trump administration's allies in Congress are also contributing to this effort to remove science from the policy process. Can you talk about some of the the bills that we've seen moving in Congress and what they would do to science? Yeah, the attacks so far haven't only been coming from administration officials. Congress has also been very much involved in a lot of the attacks on science. In addition to the Congressional Review Act, which they've used to revoke 14 rules from the Obama administration, we've also seen them introduce new bills that would undermine the science policy process. Uh, So one example is the Regulatory Accountability Act, but it should be called the Regulatory Impossibility Act. This would act actually create a tremendous number of new hoops for agencies to jump through, additional red tape and process and ways for people, industry lobbyists, for example, to challenge science-based rules. And in practice, it would make it impossible for agencies to issue new science-based rules because of this added burden. Uh, And there's several similar proposals to that. One is called the RAINS Act, the Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny Act, or RAINS Act. They all have these cutesy names that make them seem like they're these very, like, transparency-focused reforms, but actually what they do is remove accountability from (laughs) polluters. Right, yeah, and I think they almost try to bury you in process. It seems innocuous in that it Mm -hmm. just seems like a process uh, issue, but in reality, it is uh, very damaging to the way that we make science-based rules in this country on everything from air quality to food safety to consumer product safety and uh, worker protections. And so um, this Congress has certainly been complicit in the attacks on science. Mm -hmm. What's been surprising to me is how quickly this has all happened. 
That's right. It's been happening at an incredible pace. Uh, it's kept me and my team uh, extraordinarily busy in the last six months because uh, the attacks have really been coming. In fact, we created a timeline for this report, and it documents 42 major attacks on science that happened in this last six months, um, and that averages out to an attack once every four days. Wow. Uh, and so that's an incredible number if you think about how much goes into policy decisions uh, and we're already we're seeing all-out assault on science. And I think one of the important things to note here is that these attacks, when they're reported on in the news, have often emerged as isolated incidents. One appointee at one agency made a decision, or one incident happened that got some, some outrage, a bubbling up of outrage. But what's really important is not all of these individual pieces, but the pattern that they represent. Yeah, that's right. I, individually, none of these seem as egregious, but if we look at them all together, we really see this pattern emerge, um, and we see that there's this erosion of the use of science in decision-making. Uh, and so we have continued to try to look at all of those in that context. Uh, we actually compiled them on a website at ucsusa.org slash attacks on science. Uh, and that goes through all of the attacks that we've documented and puts them in context and looks at their impacts. Uh, because I think it is important that we look at these in terms of their collective impact and, and what the patterns are. Many of these incidences are along of the few trends that we've identified of sidelining science advice, uh, reducing access to science and scientists, uh, removing climate change from the picture uh, in terms of research. And uh, so these are all areas that we've seen continuous and steady attacks that are happening through multiple mechanisms. And so uh, mm -hmm. they aren't individual. We're actually seeing a broader pattern. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, demand climate action in your community on November 18th. The climate movement is still alive, with fossil fuel cronyism waging an environmental assault at the federal level. Climate action groups have, as expected, put their energy and resources behind making change at the state and local level. This spring, Maryland became the third state to ban fracking, along with counties passing bans across the country. Cities, corporations, universities, and faith-based institutions are divesting from fossil fuels. 150 city mayors across 33 states have pledged to endorse and advance a 100% clean energy vision for their communities. And 350.org's U.S. People's Delegation is attending the COP23 climate change conference in Germany right now, announcing their platform to counter Trump's fossil fuel agenda. On their own, these victories may seem small, but together they are powerful, and they are how we win. But 
we still have a lot of work to do. So if you feel like you want to get up and get out in the streets in your community to demand action after hearing this episode, and I hope you do, there is a great opportunity coming up. On November 18th, the Climate Legacy Time Capsule Project, a coalition of climate action organizations led by the Sunrise Movement, is organizing demonstrations at state houses and city halls across the country. These demonstrations will focus on determining our climate legacy, highlighting what we are fighting for, and will include the dedication of climate legacy time capsules to be opened 100 years from now. The time capsules will be filled with items from members of each community, but mayors and governors are invited to contribute too, on one condition. They must agree to uphold the Paris Agreement and back it up by committing to 100% renewable energy and an end to fossil fuel development in their city or state. All who refuse will be recorded in the time capsule on the people's terms. They will be remembered for playing petty politics while the world burned. The idea is to publicly shame climate-denying or inactive politicians today and highlight the horrific legacy they will leave behind, while bringing attention to the climate crisis we are living in right now. As the campaign site says, this is a moment of reckoning for all Americans. We must decide who we are and what we stand for. So go to climatetimecapsule.org to learn more and find a day of dedication rally near you. If you don't see an event near you on the map, you can organize one in your community. Submit the details through the website, and the campaign organizers will make sure you have the support you need. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if you want to put your governor, mayor, state legislator or city council's legacy on the line when it comes to action on climate change, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about demanding climate action in your community on November 18th via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change uh, The Guardian has in an exclusive uh, found a series of emails uh, between the staff of the National Resources Conservation Service, that's a USDA unit uh, that oversees farmers' land conservation. What do the emails show? Mm, not good. Uh, and they explain a missive from Bianca Mobis Kloon, director of soil health, lists terms that should be avoided by staff and those that should replace them. Now, let me pause here to explain what political correctness is and the history behind it. So, it is not if you find something offensive that is not what political correctness is. It's often misused that way. It actually has um, a literal background, a historical background, where it originated from. And uh, some people say, oh, it's, it was the Soviets who did it. Some say it was the Nazis who did it. It was actually both. Uh, the Soviets and the Nazis would send directives to their political operatives saying, whether something is factually correct is not important. It needs to be politically correct. You must use this kind of language when describing in their case, the Jews or uh, the pogroms, the famines, etc. They would say, don't call it a famine, call it something else, and that would be the politically correct term. So in this case here, we have the Trump administration 
telling scientists working at these organizations, you are not to use the factually correct words, you are to use the politically correct words. So let's give you the details. They explain in the emails, climate change is in the avoid category to be replaced by weather extremes. Instead of climate change adaptation, staff are asked to use resilience to weather extremes. And you see the Orwellian twist there too. It's no longer a problem, it's something that shows our resilience. Resilience to weather extremes. Well, doesn't that sound lovely? George Orwell <laughs> from the grave going, I told you, I told you. Well, yes, you did, sir. The, they explain further here. The primary cause of human-driven climate change is also targeted with the term reduced greenhouse gases blacklisted in favor of, quote, build soil organic matter, increase nutrient use efficiency. Meanwhile, sequester carbon is ruled out and replaced by, quote, build soil organic matter. Now, I'm not sure those things are even related, but everything is turned into a positive. No, 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 we're not. We don't have to worry about reducing greenhouse gases. We're building soil organic matter, and we're increasing nutrient use efficiency. You see how that's great? This is the definition of political correctness. And by the way, if you all these years, you're a right winger who claimed that you hate political correctness, I'm sure that you're on a rampage about this, and I'm sure that you're being honest and calling out the Trump administration, right? Right? Now let me give you more details in case you want them. This is Jimmy Bramblett now. He's the deputy chief for programs at NRCS. And he wrote, quote, it has become clear one of the previous administration's priorities is not consistent with that of the incoming administration. Namely, that priority is climate change. Please visit with your staff and make them aware of this shift in perspective within the executive branch. So now he wrote that four days after the inauguration. The emails I quoted previously are from February 16th, so a little bit about a month after the inauguration. So they come in and immediately start changing the words. And in the case of Bramblett, he's saying, now remember, he's talking to a bunch of scientists. He's not saying, hey, adjust the research project you're working on. Let's not only investigate climate change, but let's also investigate economic concerns, whatever it might be, right? He's saying, no, 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 stop your looking into it. We're not doing climate change anymore. Science, science, I don't care. We're going in a politically correct direction. Bramblett added that, quote, prudence should be used when discussing greenhouse gases and said the agency's work on air quality regarding these gases could be discontinued. Now, if you're looking, if you're a scientist and you're trying to find out, hey, is this stuff going in the air? Don't, don't look into it. We don't want to know the facts. We're not interested in science. Hey, right-wingers, just be proud. Just say it, man. Say you love political correctness, and that's okay. Or speak out against the Trump administration on this issue. Say that you don't like science and you don't want them to do science. And just proudly declare what you are. You don't like facts. You don't like science. Or say, how dare they? Look, we know with great certainty that if you did the correct science on it, you will find out that there is no climate change. All this nine out of the last 10 years all broke records for the hottest temperature there is. But it's a wild coincidence, and I'm sure the scientists are going to prove it. Own it. But here, you're, they're not doing that. They're just saying, stop the science. So now... Uh, let's remember, remember in the context of all the things that the Trump administration did. Uh, mentions of the dangers of climate change have been removed from the websites of the White House 
and the Department of Interior. While the EPA scrapped its entire online climate section in April, pending a review that will be, quote, updating language to reflect the approach of new leadership. So, and you, you probably heard those stories before. This is a new one regarding this particular agency in the, in the emails uh, that prove exactly how they were doing it. So when you take it in total, it's a total war on science. So, um, one person inside, inside the agency, a staffer asked a great question. He says, I would like to know the correct terms I should use instead of climate change and anything to do with carbon. I want to ensure to incorporate correct terminology that the agency has approved to use. Man, you couldn't have written it better back in fascist Germany and, and communist dictatorial uh, Soviet Union. And it's not on Tim Hafner. I, I don't know what his position is. He's just asking as a bureaucrat, what is now the politically correct words to use? I know what the correct words are. I know what the scientifically correct words are. I know what the English words are. What are the, what's the language you want me to use in order to deceive people? He doesn't have that last part, but it's obvious. It doesn't matter even if you think it's not to deceive. Now there is politically correct language and it is enforced throughout the Trump administration. What do conservatives do all the time? Whatever they want to do, they project onto liberals. Ah, the liberals want political correctness. Don't let them use scientific terms. Make sure that you stamp that out. Okay. Now, the last part. If you're not convinced yet that they're against science, wait till you get a load of this. Uh, as the Guardian explains, Sam Clovis, Trump's nomination to be the USDA's chief scientist, has labeled climate research junk science. Let's pause there for one quick second before I get to the best part. Now, if you think that the science is wrong, well, as a chief scientist, the guy's chief scientist, you would bring in your legendary other scientists, the tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of scientists paid by the fossil fuel industry to come in and go, oh, no, guys, you got the science wrong, but it's okay, I can prove it to you. No, you're not going to do any of that because you know it's not true. You say, I'm junk science, we won't be doing that anymore. All you scientists, go take a four-year vacation, right? Anyway, let's be fair. Sam Clovis nominated to be the chief scientist for this group. Last quote. Last week, it was revealed that Clovis, who is not a scientist, once ran a blog where he called progressives race traitors and race traitors and likened Barack Obama to a communist. The most important part of that sentence is the chief scientist who is not a scientist. They literally brought in a propaganda guy who made outrageous propaganda claims against Obama and other progressives, and they installed him, or they want to install him as a chief scientist. They're rubbing your face in it, including you conservatives. They're saying, okay, thank you, schmucks, keep making those arguments about how, no, no, we're pro-science too. We're going to take a guy who's not even a scientist. Clear, obvious propaganda guy, make him the chief scientist. And we're going to tell them, no, political correctness is not an option anymore. It is mandatory. But go ahead and make our arguments for us. Pretend it's the liberals doing it. Now at least you know. So if you want to be a conservative, you want a Republican, you want to support Trump, have at it, Hoss. Just proudly declare who you are. You are in favor of political correctness. And don't ever, ever complain about anybody else's political correctness again. And you're not for science. It's okay. Raise your hand and admit how stupid you are. No problem. Have pride in it. Tell us out and proud. Come out of the closet and tell us you don't believe in science. God bless. Just say it.
because that's what they're doing right here. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Breach, speaking with Michael Mann about Trump's dream team of climate deniers. We heard an excerpt from the frontline documentary War on the EPA, available in full on PBS. Democracy Now! spoke with Lee Fang about the EPA pick to oversee water safety. Got Science spoke broadly about how science is under attack from the Trump administration. Our activism for today is in support of the Climate Legacy Time Capsule Project events happening on November 18th. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks explain the real origin and current usage of political correctness. Thanks to the volunteer listener Jeffrey D. for his contribution to today's episode. If you are interested in helping the show yourself the way Jeffrey did by being an extra set of ears, scanning the progressive media sphere and submitting clips to the show, the best way to do that is by joining the Best of the Left Network, where you can get all the details on how to integrate into our volunteer network. And we could definitely use your help, so find the link to join the network in the notes for today's show, either on the device you're using or on our website. And as always, you can find links to each of the segments in the show in our show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. I just listened to uh, Amy's voicemail from, I think she's from somewhere in Alabama, and she's uh, you know, a leftist pro-gun. I wanted to give my perspective. I'm, uh, you know, I grew up in the UK, I'm actually you know, American-born, but I grew up in England, and then moved back to the States. And up until really recently, I was pretty anti-gun, because I kind of just thought, what's, you know, what's the point? Having a gun, I have no use for a gun. Ultimately, I believe that guns, just you know, the presence of guns, makes things more violent but in the last couple of years I've changed my opinion and the reason is I think America has a gun problem because it's a cultural thing I think it, I think it's not necessarily that there are so many guns but it's that it's a very fearful nation and you have all these other things that are going on that you know exacerbate it and, and, the, and the guns guns are just sort of one of them so I guess my point is banning guns like banning drugs just wouldn't work and I've been, you know, I've been shooting once uh, a couple of years ago with a friend who was visiting from London, and it was fun. wasn't really for me, but again, in the past couple of years, I've thought about maybe, you know, getting a gun, getting some proper training, and uh, you know, I'm in myself because I have a family, and as as uh, Amy says, I mean, why let why let the conservative nut jobs have all the guns? Obviously, and people are going to disagree. But the bottom line to me is that, you know, you, again, you can't just ban guns because, because, because banning things like prohibition just does not work. I think you have to have a wider conversation about culture, about all sorts of things in America for things to, for the mass shootings to stop. For instance, they only started under Reagan when you had a, the erosion of the welfare state. And if you look at, say, for instance, the going postal stuff, the, you know, the people shooting up, you know, their workplaces, that was disgruntled white men who had shitty bosses. So uh, again, it all kind of ties into uh, the crisis of late capitalism. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot. Love the show as always. Take care. Hey Jay, this is Anthony in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
I wanted to throw in on the, the gun conversation. When I first heard Annie's message, I didn't really call in and respond because, for the most part, I agree with her. I'm a queer, white-presenting guy, so I experience some privilege like she does, but I'm still familiar with guns and enjoy having them. But then David called in, David from Columbus. And I get that he's well-meaning, but at the end of the day, he's gaslighting Annie because he's trying to say because you were raised with guns, you have experience and exposure to guns, you can't be rational with them. That's like saying a guy being raised in a misogynist society can never turn around and become a feminist or become an ally or become an advocate for change. The fact is that progressive and far-left literature often make the argument that an unarmed proletariat will always be dominated. A really good example is our favorite pervert, Slavlov Zizek, who says, Every act of violence against the state on the part of the oppressed is ultimately defensive. To the oppressed, violence is always legitimate, but never necessary. It will always be a matter of strategy whether or not to use violence against the enemy. This is from an article in the Jacobian Journal on May 26, 2011, for people who want to see reference. The problem we face today, uh, specifically today, November 4th, the so-called uh, Civil War of Antifa, is that our opponents have been attempting to take the mantle of the oppressed in reaction to identity politics and the attempt of the left to make some actual change. And because of this, they're becoming more and more willing to use lethal violence against us. I hope I don't hear any news of the suspected anarchist attack today, but I'm still going to walk a little easier tonight with a gun in my belt. Thanks, Jay. Love everything you do. Hi, Jay. This is Erica from Massachusetts. I called in once before, but I wanted to call in in the context of the breaking Donna Brazil news and this uh, issue of the DNC rigging, quote-unquote, everything for Hillary Clinton. And it sort of a perspective on building a progressive coalition is kind of shifting the discussion to parties in general. And this whole idea that for some reason, Hillary Clinton and the DNC, well, the DNC in particular, should have allowed someone not a Democrat get a fair shot at a Democratic nomination. As an example, I am an unaffiliated with any party voter in Massachusetts, and as such, I couldn't vote in the primaries. That was kind of a risk I ran. Bernie Sanders caucuses with the Democrats, but is not a Democrat. He's an independent. And so I'm sort of questioning why this would be such breaking news and or a surprise. I'm not saying that I think it's a good idea. I actually think the problem lies in the party structure as a whole. And that maybe if we talk about that and how party structure tends to shape the way that we approach voting and elections, that maybe we can start to get at real structural changes that can more accurately reflect the electorate. I don't know. It's something that I've thought about and that I've talked about. I've broached it in my classroom. Students did not like it, particularly with how popular Bernie Sanders was. And I'm just curious what other listeners might think about that. Thanks again for everything you do. And I look forward to listening to more shows. Have a great day. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. A few quick responses to the voicemails today. Uh, first, Zach from Atlanta discussing banning guns. Uh, my understanding is that no one is really talking about banning guns, uh, only regulating them more stringently. Like the the right-wing uh, pro-gun fanatics hold up Australia as, as like the worst-case scenario terrifying prospect of banning guns and taking them away from us. But my understanding is that Australia just made more strict regulations for guns, offered people the chance to keep your gun if you follow the new rules, or if you don't want to follow the new rules, you can just turn those guns in, and I think they got paid for them even. And my understanding, again, is that Australia is awash in guns. They have lots and lots of guns in Australia, but because all of the people who have them have had to go through so much, uh, you know, such stringent regulatory paperwork or whatever that it turns out that illegal guns are incredibly expensive. So criminals can't afford them, don't have them. So then the people who have guns are, you know, legal, regular gun owners who don't go on shooting sprees. And so that has helped immensely decrease, uh, the, you know, the number of gun deaths in that country. So I really don't think that anyone is talking about banning guns. So not to pick on Zach, but I, I think that the argument being framed that way is, uh, I don't know, that it just sounds like more of a right-wing scare talking point that has no basis in reality, but scares people into thinking it's a terrible policy, it's tyrannical, and it wouldn't work anyway, and so it shuts down the conversation. But it's a straw man because no one's suggesting that. Uh, secondly, I, I guess I have no major comments on the need to arm the proletariat in order to throw off the yoke of our capitalist overlords. I guess I just prefer to focus on building up the co-op economy or something like that, uh, but to each his own. And, and then finally, the, the comment about you know Bernie not being a Democrat. I mean, I think I think the caller is is right that there's something more fundamentally wrong with the the party system. So there's probably going to be a lot of agreement if, if we really had a, a long conversation about it. But just on the point of Bernie not being a Democrat, my perspective on that is is I'm so far removed from giving any kind of a shit about the label next to a politician that. I can't even wrap my mind around what that statement means. The Democrats are expected to be fair to someone who's not a Democrat. But like, what does it take to be a Democrat? You just like re-register on a piece of paper and declare it so? Like literally, that's all there is to it. And as she said, Bernie's been caucusing with the Democrats for as long as he's been in politics pretty much. So the idea that he filled out his paperwork wrong and the people who are in the party and have some sort of bizarre deep, deep heartfelt connection with that party infrastructure is then offended that someone who didn't buy into that same thing is is so much of an outsider that they should be systematically disadvantaged in, in a in a in an election seems completely bizarre. I mean, besides the fact that he actually ran as a Democrat, so he's a Democrat now. I mean, because that's how easy it is to switch. 
but but the real victim here, and I, I, I want to bring this, I, I haven't heard anyone talk about this. Why won't anybody remember poor little Martin O'Malley? Did he not deserve to have a fair election? I mean, all of the advantages given to Clinton used to systematically disadvantage Bernie also systematically disadvantaged Martin O'Malley. Won't won't someone speak up for Martin O'Malley? If if no one will, then I will, and uh, and, and because I'm never going to have an, another opportunity to tell a story about Martin O'Malley, I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you the one that I have. Uh, so I actually I met Martin O'Malley several years ago. I was working at the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. They focus on Maryland, D.C., and Virginia as a local climate activism group, and they gave an award to Martin O'Malley once when he was the governor of Maryland. And so we went to this sort of award ceremony gala thing and presented this award to him and, you know, I think some awards to a few other, uh, you know, local climate people and, and maybe politicians. And so Martin O'Malley came and he gave a speech and he chatted with people. And so our staff was there and my job was to film. My, my, my business cards read at the time, executive assistant slash new media hotshot. I, I did the podcasting stuff, the, the videography, all the video editing, uh, things like that for the organization. And so I, I was filming Martin O'Malley's speech and he's, the exact epitome of what you imagine a politician is, like a good politician, where they're simultaneously a little bit plastic, but also incredibly charismatic. You know, he was funny. Everyone, you know, everyone liked him, smiles all around. And, uh, and, and it's just this bizarro, infectious kind of, uh, bubble that they have around them that, uh, is is some sort of weird magical force that happens, and uh, and the one real interaction I had with him was after he finished his remarks. He, uh, you know, he sort of stepped down off the, you know, out of the center of the room where he was, and he walked straight over to me and whispered in my ear, and you know, it was unexpected. There was no uh, reason I thought like, you know, what, what does he have to say to me? And, and so it was a very, was a very special moment. It felt like, oh man, this, this guy who's the governor of the state and the person we're here to give an award to has a message for me. And, uh, and what he wanted to tell me was uh, that he, he definitely noticed as I had, and I think others had that he let uh, maybe one little profanity slip out in his speech. And so he came over and asked if I would make sure that that didn't make it into any kind of final cut of the video that was to go out in public. And uh, so very dutifully and a little bit awestruck, I, I let him know that it was okay and I had it under control and I wouldn't wouldn't let that get out. And that's exactly what I did when I when I made the video. I edited out his uh, little slip of a profanity. So I will admit that's basically a, a story without a moral. It's just a strange thing that happened. But it uh, it, it was just the the one demonstration I have had at how politicians act up close. And it's it's not quite bad. It's strange. It feels good in the moment because they're so charismatic. And they suck you in in ways that I don't fully understand. And it takes a long time, 
weeks, maybe years to then look back and realize that that is a little bit more on the side of creepy than good <laughs> as as you imagined it was at the time and uh and and I say all of that just to just to give my personal connection and and from that one experience say that I I still have this a little bit of defensiveness from our Nomali. Like I I met that guy. He was really nice and he came up and asked a personal favor of me uh when he accidentally swore during his during his remarks and uh and and so the DNC can't go around giving one politician all the advantages and disadvantaging a good, strong, solid democrat like Martin O'Malley. I mean, if the country was in the mood for some good old status quo politicians who could very well just be a cardboard cutout of themselves, Martin O'Malley could have been a great candidate. But the part of the story that really matters, uh, to me at least, is that I really just can't wrap my mind around the whole idea of giving a lot of weight and credence to a person having been a Democrat or not. And I just tend to not listen to people who hold that point of view, you know, not not because I filter them out based on that, but just the people I like and respect generally don't hold that opinion. And so I just heard an interviewer recently saying something along those lines. And, you know, he's, he's a good interviewer. He's had lots of good guests, and but he's, he hadn't really talked about uh, you know, party politics and specifically about the Democrats and, and the primary last year, but it came out in this one interview and he was getting kind of steamed and he was just like, isn't that irritating to have someone who's not even a Democrat wagging his finger in your face, trying to tell you what to do? And, and I just think like, how is it possible that that is one of the aspects on which you base your opinion of this guy and the advice he's giving. And he went on to say that, you know, I I would still much rather have Elizabeth Warren wagging her finger in my face, telling me that the Democrats need to be better because at least she is a Democrat. And I just think like, man, what a waste of energy to have an opinion like that. The, the way I see Bernie Sanders is he's like a consultant giving advice from lived experience where he was enormously successful and he's giving this advice for free. This is like millions of dollars worth of consulting that he's trying desperately to give away for free. And the response is from people like that saying, yeah, but he's not even one of us. So I'd rather not take his advice because I'm so annoyed by him as a person. Like the, the whole, as I said, I can't even wrap my mind around it. So that that that's my take on on the Democrats from deep in the primary season and how that all went all the way to today and the reactions they are still having to that same guy who as far as I can tell is just trying to help. So if you have comments on that or anything else the number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter 
Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Wonder what we're doing Can't see past